Greetings, this is Jeff Riddle, pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. This is an audio version of a book review that I have written. The book under review is Perspectives on the Ending of Mark, edited by David Allen Black and published by Broadman and Holman in 2008. This review first appeared in the journal American Theological Inquiry, volume 5, number 1, in 2012, and it appeared on pages 133 to 138. Here now is the review. This volume is a collection of papers originally presented at a conference titled The Last 12 Verses of Mark, Original or Not, that met April 13 and 14 of 2007 at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Indeed, four varying perspectives are given on Mark 16, 9-20. The book reveals the confusion and crisis of confidence that exists among evangelicals with regard not only to Mark's ending, but also more generally to the received texts of Scripture. Dan Wallace of Dallas Theological Seminary, a passionate advocate of reasoned eclecticism, gets the conversation started in the first chapter titled, Mark 16.8 as the conclusion of the second gospel. That chapter is found on pages 1 through 39. Wallace, perhaps the foremost neo-evangelical scholar on textual matters, begins by saying that one's conclusions on Mark's ending are necessarily driven by his presuppositions. Those unwilling to see Mark ending at 16.8 are guided, one, by a dogged commitment to Matthean priority, that is, unwilling to believe that Mark would have omitted the information in Matthew 28, two, by one's views on what he calls the whole field of textual criticism, perhaps implying that majority text advocates will never see the light on this, and three, by bibliology. Here Wallace says plainly, quote, I don't hold to the doctrine of preservation, end quote, page seven. More on this later. Also of interest here is Wallace's own autobiographical account of how he started his academic career under the influence of majority text and Griesbach hypothesis, Matthean priority men like Harry Sturtz of Biola and Zane Hodges of Dallas. Then, while leading a doctrinal seminar on textual criticism as a student at Dallas, he made what he calls the enormously painful methodological shift to reasoned eclecticism. He adds, quote, Credit needs to go to Daryl Bach as one who was instrumental in my shift, end quote, page 8, footnote 14. He continues, quote, Two months after my textual critical foundations had crumbled, I abandoned Matthean priority, end quote, page 8. Wallace concludes, quote, What changed were not the arguments, but my presuppositions. I came to the deep conviction that evangelical scholars must be in the business of pursuing truth, regardless of where it takes us, rather than protecting our presuppositions. This has been the most liberating conclusion I've ever drawn in my academic career. End quote, page 9. This comment is curious. Is Wallace really implying that only those who practice reasoned eclecticism are in the business of pursuing truth? Do reasoned eclectics really make no attempt to protect their presuppositions while others slavishly bury their heads in the sand when they meet evidence contrary to their assumptions? My experience is that reasoned eclectics hold just as dogmatically to their presuppositions as anyone else. 
Moving on to examination of the text itself, Wallace gives most of his time to the external evidence, leaving the internal evidence argument against the authenticity of 16.9-20 to Keith Elliott's later chapter. In attempting to understand why a handful of manuscripts do not have the so-called long ending, Wallace concludes that it makes more sense to think that someone added verses 9-20 through to Mark, ending at verse 8, rather than someone intentionally omitted it. Thus, he advocates the short ending at 16.8. The major textual upheaval at the end of Mark with the long ending, the so-called intermediate ending, after verse 8 in the Latin Codex Babiensis, and the freer Logion at verse 14 in Codex W, could only have come about because scribes were uncomfortable with a gospel ending without any resurrection appearances. He concludes, quote, If the internal evidence on behalf of the longer ending looks at all suspect, we should consider the matter closed. Mark's gospel did not originally have verses 9 through 20, end quote, page 29. Finally, drawing on the work of J. Lee Magnus's Marking the End, Sense and Absence in the Gospel of Mark, and against N. Clayton Croy's The Mutilation of Mark's Gospel, Wallace argues for the validity of Mark's intentionally ironic ending of his gospel at 16.8. Thus Mark, quote, leaves off the ending precisely to draw the reader into the story, end quote, page 38. The conversation continues in the second chapter titled The Long Ending of Mark as Canonical Verity. That's found on pages 40 to 79, which comes from Byzantine text advocate Maurice Robinson of Southeastern Baptist Seminary. Robinson begins by noting that although the ending of Mark has been considered a flashpoint in the past 150 years, the last 12-verse segment, quote, has appeared unchallenged within the main text of nearly all Bible and manuscripts nearly all Bible and manuscripts over the past 1600 years end quote page 41 the significance of the textual problem and its resolution he says quote may be less notable and consequential than the endless discussions over the past centuries have made it appear end quote page 41 he then sketches the four textual possibilities for the ending of mark on pages 41 and 42 First possibility, short ending at 16.8, supported by Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Manuscript 304. Second possibility, intermediate ending following 16.8, supported by Babiensius alone. A few others have the intermediate ending alone with verses 9 through 20. Possibility three, long ending, concluding at 16.20, supported by all remaining continuous text manuscripts, lectionaries, and most versional witnesses. Possibility four, long ending with expansion following chapter 16, verse 14, supported by the so-called Freer Logion in Codex W. Robinson also points out that from the 19th century, scholarly opinion favored the lost ending hypothesis, while in more recent days, quote, the critical viewpoint has shifted to deliberate termination at 16.8 as reflecting authorial intent. Page 43. Compare, for example, Wallace's view. Robinson states that were the long ending not absent from Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, then, quote, the current dispute quickly would evaporate. The conjoint testimony of these two manuscripts remains 
the eclectic touchstone, end quote, page 77. Though Robinson is convinced by the external evidence alone, he does devote attention to the internal evidence as well. He weighs the arguments on the alleged non-Markan style and vocabulary of the longer ending and finds them wanting. Robinson points out that the overcounts and tallies of supposed non-Markan usage in Mark 16, 9-20 are suspect, since in most writers, these exist primarily to embellish an a priori view of longer-ending non-authenticity based primarily on its absence from the manuscripts Aleph and B. You can see that on page 62, footnote 88. Of note here is Robinson's reference to various studies that have examined passages of similar length to Mark 16, 9-20. See the discussion on pages 65 and 66. He cites John Broadus's study of Mark 15, 44 through 16, 8, John Bergen's of Mark 1, 1 through 12, and Mark 1, 9 through 20, and Bruce Terry's study of Mark 15, 40 through 16, 4. All of these reveal findings that are more inconsistent with typical Markan usage than that which is found in 16, 9 through 20. This suggests, quote, that far less is gained from vocabulary and stylistic analysis than often is claimed. Appeals to Markan style or Markan vocabulary thus appear problematic and rest upon data more coincidental and transitory than substantial, end quote, page 66. Robinson concludes with a helpful 15-point summary of his argument for can- canonical veracity for the canonical veracity of 16, 9 through 20, on pages 74 through 76. Among these, he points out that the so-called long ending has been ecclesiastically recognized and canonically accepted from at least the mid-2nd century to the time of the Enlightenment. He concludes that it is, quote, the only fitting conclusion to Mark's gospel, end quote, page 78. Keith Elliott a thoroughgoing eclectic from the University of Leeds, contributes chapter 3, titled The Last Twelve Verses of Mark, Original or Not? It's found on pages 80 to 102. Eliot begins by noting that the beginnings and ends of ancient books were particularly vulnerable. He not only sees the ending of Mark as secondary, but also its beginning, even though it has no outstanding textual difficulties. In his discussion of the external evidence with regard to Mark's ending, Eliot cedes Robinson's point that most modern scholars take issue with 16.9-20 primarily because it is omitted in the two manuscripts on which most critical editions of the Greek New Testament and modern English versions rest. Such scholars would conclude that, quote, we are not dealing with any two manuscripts but with Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, splendidly produced and evidently prepared as deluxe editions, end quote, page 82. Without strong external evidence outside Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, why is the ending of Mark challenged? According to Eliot, quote, the answer is that the contents and theology of verses 9 through 20 are uncharacteristic of Mark elsewhere, end quote, page 87. Not surprisingly for a thoroughgoing eclectic, the issue turns on internal evidence. Eliot sees 16, 9 through 20 as what he calls an inferior piece of writing, plotting, and gray, compared with Mark's racy, simple, and colloquial writing elsewhere. That's page 91. Thus, he is unwilling to credit Mark with the incorporation of this previously composed ending 
into his new gospel. Unwilling to see Mark ending his gospel with 16.8, Eliot speculates that the original ending was lost and 16.9-20 concocted as an alternative. He even speculates that the so-called lost ending included a Christophany to Peter. See page 96. Eliot concludes his chapter with a broadside against the doctrine of inerrancy. He states, quote, The sooner the language of inerrancy is dropped in the context of textual criticism, the better. End quote, page 101. The final perspective comes from the editor, David Allen Black, also of Southeastern Baptist Seminary, in a chapter titled, Mark 69-20 as Mark and Supplement. And this is found on pages 103-123. to Black tips his hand at the outset, noting, quote, that he is absolutely convinced that the long ending of Mark, Mark 69-20, is original, based on the external evidence, and that it deserves the canonical status it has enjoyed throughout church history, end quote, page 103. He argues that, quote, Mark originally ended his gospel narrative, comprised of the actual words of Peter at 16.8, and then later supplied the last 12 verses himself as a suitable conclusion, end quote, page 104. Black offers his, this theory based on his unique solution to the synoptic problem. He postulates that Matthew was written first, then Luke, under the influence of Paul, Mark under the influence of Peter, and finally John. The Gospel of Mark, as dictated by Peter, originally ended at 16.8, but then Mark added verses 9-20 through 20 as an act of piety to the memory of Peter, and, quote, to round off the final discourse, end quote, page 120. Mark served as a bridge between Matthew and Luke, whose principal function was to introduce Luke to the Christian public and to confirm its equality with Matthew. Black concludes that we need not doubt 16.9-20's place in the Holy Scriptures, quote, even if it is Mark's supplement to Peter's account of the life of Jesus, end quote, page 122. The book's concluding chapter comes from Daryl Bach of Dallas Seminary, titled The Ending of Mark, A Response to the Essays, found on pages 124-141. to Bach, not surprisingly given Wallace's comment that he credits Bach with his conversion to reasoned eclecticism, acknowledges at the outset that he holds that the shorter ending of Mark is original. See page 124. Thus, he does not see Mark 16, 9-20 as original, nor does he accept Black's idea of it as a Markan edition. Bach consoles the conservative reader, however, by reassuring us that although the long ending of Mark is not original, it is, quote, for the most part, end quote, consistent with what is taught elsewhere in the New Testament. See page 125. He continues, quote, This observation is important because it means the presence or absence of this text does not impact the core of Christian teaching at all, end quote, page 125. In his observations on method, Bach says there are three potential forks in the road one might take that determine the destination one reaches in investigation of Mark's ending. One's view of the Byzantine text, one's take on the synoptic problem, and how one weighs internal versus external evidence. See page 126. He denounces the prejudice of some majority text advocates like Wilbur Pickering, who come to the text with a priori rhetoric. According to Bach, quote, it is this kind of unnuanced oppositional thinking about such issues that does not advance discussion, end quote. And he praises the contributors to this volume for their irenic tone, page 126. Bach is critical of what he calls brittle fundamentalism, see pages 126 to 127. Interestingly, 
He does not also claim caution against a priori eclectic rhetoric or brittle liberalism. In his discussion of external evidence with regard to Marx's ending, Bach says, quote, The idea that discussion for the shorter ending is hypnotized by Aleph and B is misleading, end quote, page 128. He argues, for example, that a significant variety of witnesses show that the shorter ending was widespread in the earliest period, despite the fact that the short ending is attested in only three Greek manuscripts. Again, Aleph, B, and 304. This is a point Eliot readily conceded. Bach appeals to the geographic distribution of the intermediate ending to prove his point that, quote, we are dealing with more than Aleph and B, end quote, page 129. When it comes to internal evidence, Bach agrees with Wallace that Mark ends at 16.8. According to Bach, quote, Mark leaves the reader with a choice, end quote, page 136. To him, the short ending makes more sense than Eliot's proposal of a lost ending and offers a more cogent explanation for the later non-Markan edition of the long ending. Thus, he takes the internal evidence to be key. It is more likely that the original existence of the short reading explains why we have the long, longer reading and the other variant endings of Mark than the other way around. End quote, page 137. In Bach's conclusion to this collection of essays, he again makes the point that, quote, there is no central teaching of the Christian faith at stake in which, in which view is chosen, end quote, on the ending of Mark. See page 141. He continues, quote, and instructive, as instructive and interesting as this problem is, we should not make more out of the debate than what it deserves. The long and short of it is this. Whatever choice we make, it should not significantly alter our faith. End quote, page 141. It appears that Bach wishes to make textual criticism an atheological task. But can this really be done? Bach maintains that no central teaching of the Christian faith is at stake. Is this true? Does not this discussion have relevance for the doctrine of providence, particularly with regard to divine preservation of Scripture? Does it not have significance for the doctrine of Scripture itself, including areas such as canon, sufficiency, and inerrancy? Have not the writers of these essays, most particularly those who advocate the short ending of Mark, raised these very doctrinal issues in their writing? What about Dan Wallace's open rejection of the doctrine of scriptural preservation? Is this not a confessional issue? Wallace certainly sees it as such. He consciously rejects the doctrine of preservation as what he calls, first formulated in the Westminster Confession, 1646, as having, quote, a poor biblical basis, end quote, page 7. He continues, quote, I do not think that the doctrine is defensible, either exegetically or empirically, end quote. Adding, quote, I may be wrong in my view of preservation, but this presupposition at least keeps the door open for me for all the options in Mark 16, end quote, page 7. This apparently includes the option of expelling Mark 16, 9 through 20 from the canon of Scripture. Is this not a serious doctrinal issue? Compare Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. The comments of Keith Elliott touching on the doctrine of Scripture are even more alarming. Elliott contends that textual problems with Mark's ending, as well as the general, quote, fluid text in much of the New Testament as a whole, makes talk of inerrancy, as narrowly defined by some, indefensible, end quote, page 99. Like Wallace, Elliott patently rejects any notion of divine preservation of Scripture. 
In fact, he says that, quote, to pretend that their words were transmitted unchanged is stretching credulity to the breaking point, end quote, page 99. He accuses those who hold to the majority text or textus receptus of ignoring what he calls, quote, the scientific results of textual criticism as practiced in the past century or more, and such preconceived conclusions alienate academic discussions that depend on open and free inquiry, end quote, page 99. According to Eliot, concepts such as divine protectionism, inerrancy, or inspiration, whatever those words are said to mean, are merely judgments based on, quote, a certain brand of church tradition, end quote, page 100. He concludes, quote, the sooner the language of inerrancy is dropped in the context of textual criticism, the better it will be for scholarship, end quote, page 101. Eliot's views also have an impact on his concept of canon for as he puts it, quote, inerrancy is not coterminous with canonicity, end quote, page 100. Canonicity does not include the concept of a particular form of a book, he says, page 100. According to Eliot, quote, the mark accepted as canonical was the form of the text the person, the individual church or monastery happened to possess, end quote, page 100. Scripture has no original, fixed, or clearly identifiable text, Eliot cites his preference in text criticism for seeking what the Munster Institute calls the Ausgangstext. Quote, a reconstruction as close as scholarship enables one to get to the possible original authorial wording, but one that explains the starting place. Sorry, a reconstruction as close as scholarship enables one to get to the possible original authorial wording, but one that explains the starting place from which subsequent existing corruptions arose. End quote, page 99. Such a reading might be preserved somewhere in the over 5,000 surviving Greek witnesses by sheer chance, says Eliot, but where it is, one will never know with certainty. End quote, page 100. Bach's conclusions about text criticism as, a, as atheological simply do not fit. New evangelical scholars who have embraced the textual methodology of the academy seem intent on throwing off the shackles of brittle fundamentalism that hinders their academic freedom. No concern, however, express, is expressed for what this freedom means for confessional integrity. True academic freedom for a believing scholar comes when he has the security of confessional boundaries. Wallace would have us abandon the doctrine of scriptural preservation. Eliot takes, the thing, takes things several steps further and suggests doing away with errancy, canon, and even inspiration. This is much too high a price to pay. This book provides an interesting dis discussion of the textual matters relating to the ending of Mark's gospel and will prove a useful resource for those interested in that topic. Perhaps more significantly, it illustrates what Greg Beale has recently called the, quote, erosion of inerrancy, end quote, among evangelicals. If one has no confidence as to what the text of Scripture is, how may one meaningfully claim that it is without error? Here ends the review. You can receive audiobook reviews and notes like this one, Word Magazine podcasts and sermons by subscribing to Christ Reformed Baptist Church's sermon audio feed on iTunes by searching for Christ Reformed Baptist Church. For video material, you can subscribe to the Word Magazine channel on YouTube.com. You can also find written book reviews, notes, and articles on my blog, jeffriddle.net.